Back when I was young, I loved animation. From Disney's intricate feature-length masterpieces to dirt-cheap TV filler in which characters walk past the same door, pot plant and fire hydrant 15 times in a row, if it was animated, I would be glued to it. Not unusual for a child, you might think. But as I grew up and my peers lost interest in what they derisively termed kid stuff, my love of animation only grew stronger. You see, where most people saw only cute, colourful characters frolicking, or more often being whammed on the head by anvils, I saw thousands of little drawings soaked in the sweat of the unseen talent that brought them to life. I saw the fingerprints of painstaking plasticine manipulators as they dedicated days to perfecting a gesture that could be missed in the blink of an eye. And as I further embraced this incredible medium, I realised that animation was not just an escapist, comedic entertainment, but a medium with more possibilities than almost any other, bursting with scathing satires, loving laments, and incisive examinations of the human condition with the power to unite international audiences in a shared sense of wonder at the miracle of the moving image. And I wondered then, as I wonder still, how so many people around me were not seeing what I saw. How could they look at such a sumptuously diverse dessert cart and see only a trifle? Hello, I'm Andy Golden, and welcome to the first in a short series of very special episodes of Spoiler, in which the rest of the team have generously stood down allowing me to realise a lifelong dream of talking to some of my animation heroes in the hope of illustrating what an astonishingly exciting and underrated medium animation really is. In this episode, I'll be talking to American writer, director and animator Jerry Rees. Jerry was mentored by Eric Larson, one of Disney's Nine Old Men, a group of core animators responsible for some of the most famous films the studio ever made. He was also part of a now famously prodigious class of students at the California Institute of Arts which included the likes of John Lasseter, Tim Burton, Brad Bird and Henry Selleck. Jerry joined Disney at a key transitional time in which the mantle was passing from the old guard to a new group with new ideas on what could be done with animation. This was also the dawn of computer animation, of which Jerry was a key exponent with his pioneering work on Tron. Jerry would ultimately go on to work as a director for Disney's theme park attractions, but before that, In 1987, he directed what I still think is one of the greatest animated feature films of all time, The Brave Little Toaster. My eagerness to talk Toaster with its creator was more than matched by Jerry's own effusive energy and obvious adoration for this underrated work. I started by asking Jerry how he got his first big break working alongside Eric Larson at Disney. How it happened was I I was going to, um, my my mom was driving me to a paper factory nearby where I could get paper and then I would go to... um, the medical university nearby, I heard they had an industrial hole punch uh, that could punch the paper for animation, right? So I was using the industrial hole punch, and the head of the department came in and said, you know, what are you doing, kid? And (laughs) oh, I, you know, somebody told me I could use your machine. So anyway, he he asked me what I was up to, and I said, well, I was doing animation at home, and he just said, you can't do that. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, you need an Oxbury camera stand, you need this and that, and he was going through all this stuff, just very sternly telling me I couldn't animate. So uh, I don't remember this, but later my mom told me when we were driving away that I turned to her and said, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> so uh, she was glad that I had some, some self-confidence. But the uh, next time the guy caught me there, he said, well, bring in some of your stuff. I want to see what you're up to. And so I did. I brought a little projector, and it was uh, you know, a Super 8 movie projector with a little sound. 
anyway, he went from the naysayer of you can't do it. He, he liked what he saw, and he said, well, I've, I've heard that Disney is going to start looking for some new people. The veterans are getting close to retirement. So if you're interested, here's a phone number to uh, the production manager. Uh, <laughs> I said, oh, my gosh. So he wrote it on a little strip of paper and ripped it off and handed it to me. So that was my entree into Disney. It was, it was a guy that told me, you can't do it then turning around and saying, here's a phone number. And it was the most important phone number, I think, probably <laughs> in my life. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so I called and talked to the production manager there. And so he said, yeah, have your, have your dad drive you down. We'll take a look at your portfolio. And so I did. And um, they liked what they saw. And so they said, well, here's a, here's a desk. And Eric Larson will be uh, your mentor. And I was just amazed. <laughs> you know, he was one of Walt's nine old men. And yeah. Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson and Milt Call were still at their desks animating. <laughs> so for the last year and a half or so of, uh, of high school, I would just go in whenever I had a school break, and, and that would be my desk, and I would try out animation, and Eric would give me amazing notes. So as I was about to graduate from high school, they, the studio said, well, would you like to be teacher's assistant for this new thing we're going to start called the CalArts Character Animation Program? And, I said, oh, my gosh, I would love to, but, you know, we can't afford that. And so they said, well, here's a scholarship. So I had <laughs> state and federal scholarship, and then Disney just paid the rest. Uh, otherwise, we, you know, we couldn't have afforded it at all. So then the summer before that college year started, I just spent the whole time living at the studio preparing materials for that first year. And then That's incredible. Uh, and you ended up working on The Fox and the Hound, didn't you, on character animation on The Fox and the Hound? Yeah, after two years at CalArts, they asked four of us to become college dropouts and just start working full-time at the studio. So I was one of the four they invited, and I hopped over onto that. And, and just before that, worked on a well, a, the tail end of production on uh, Pete's Dragon. So I helped yeah. with the final cleanup drawings for that and then jumped onto the Christmas feature that they were doing the the small the one, small and, one and yeah. next up was uh, Fox and the Hound. When you're the best of friends Having so much fun together You're not even aware You're such a funny pair You're the best of friends Even though I animated several different characters, I began specializing on the two birds, especially the little <laughs> tiny bird, Dinky. Is this it, Puma? Oh, sure, Dickie. This is the place. I never forget a tree. I never forget a tree. <laughs> it just kind of ca it caused a bit of a stir at the time. I know now, there's, gosh, there's been so many experiments with animation and animation timing. It doesn't seem as unique now. But back at the time, with hand-drawn animation for features at Disney, you know, there were these kind of rules to live by. And, and uh, you know, the idea of doing a little tiny bird that would have three or four poses per second and be like a blur and look like it had an explosion of feathers instead of flapping was just thought of as, well, you wouldn't even try that. But I, that was considered too cartoony, too stylized. And, but I, I was going out and looking at, at little birds on the lawn, and I was amazed to see them doing all this stuff. And it was, it was not hard to understand. Yeah. I could watch the bird, and it's like, yeah, it had two, seconds, two poses per second. It had four poses per second. It did all these crazy little hops and stuff, and it was easy to process. You, you weren't confused by it. So I went, well, there has to be a way to translate that into drawings, into timing. And so I did the first experiments with that, and um, the two directors were really happy with it, and the rest of the animation team thought it was pretty cool. 
cool and, and different from what they were used to. And and then Eric, I thought it was the coolest thing. Eric Eric Larson. Um, okay, here's the crazy part. While while the, the directors loved what they saw in film, if I ever flipped the drawings for them, they said, "No, that's not allowed. You can't do that." Right. <laughs> so yeah. So I'm I'm in a I'm in a quandary. It's like, well, they like what they see on the screen, but they don't approve the drawings. So I actually had to hide. The drawing, so the, the assistants that would do final cleanup, they hatched up this plot, and so they would take any extreme drawings that were too crazy out of the stack and then take it to be approved. And when it was approved, then they would reinsert the crazy drawings and send it through the incomplete department <laughs> of camera, and the directors approved the, you know, the, the normal drawings, yeah. never saw the crazy drawings, and then when they saw it all together on film, they loved it. So I had to do that through the entire process and never let them see what I was doing, <laughs> except for Eric Larson. And what an amazing thing. He, you know, one of the veterans, one of the nine old men, he loved that kind of innovation. And he, he kind of liked that sort of uh, subterfuge too. Uh, so he asked me to give a, a chat to the, to the rest of the animation team and he attended it. And um, essentially what I, I did was told them, we, you know, we've been given a set of rules. We've been told that, you know, if, if you take the bird and have it stretch the length of the, of the screen or you have the wings suddenly look like it has 20 wings for a, a frame and then it's just gone, like that is too cartoony to belong in a feature. It's not realistic. Now I'm going to show you nature film, which I got from the archive of Disney nature, nature uh, documentaries. And um, they gave me a projection room where I could go single frame and it had a little dowser thing that would come in front of the frame and keep it from burning in, in the projector. Yeah. But I, I showed them actual footage and the bird sitting there, then one frame later it's moved just a, a fraction of an inch forward. In the next frame it looks like an explosion of wings, uh, like 50 wings, around just a streak of color. And the next frame it's gone. So I said, okay, that was a real camera and a real bird and the rules are that is too cartoony for real life. <laughs> Guess what? It was real life. So, uh, so I say we break the rules and we just explore and discover new things. And Eric Larson and that whole, the, all the veterans loved that, and they pushed us into that, and they kept encouraging us by even behind the scenes when it wasn't politically cool uh, to do it openly. They were encouraging, saying, "Yeah, keep it up, keep it up." They said that's how we did things. We looked out in life. We brought things into our work that we, you know, we discovered and. They were talking about, you know, some uh, lightning scene in Pinocchio, and one of the guys had uh, they'd come out of a pub, and they'd they'd, uh, they'd had a few pints, and uh, <laughs> one of them just laid down in the rain to look up at the stormy sky <laughs> and was looking at the lightning, and it was inspired him to do effects animation. And they were like, "That's how you do it. You don't look at an archive of other artists' work. You go look at nature, yeah, and you sure. look at people, and you look at animals." Now see what you've done. You cost us our breakfast. I cost us our breakfast. It was your fault. What are you talking, my fault? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. My fault? Oh, yeah. No. You were the one who let it know. You were the one for breakfast? Yeah, well, if it wasn't for you, yeah. I'm not gonna Then my last mission on that film was that there was a rush to do the final confrontation with the hunter and the bear. Oh, and the bear, yeah. And that was something... Glenn Keane was animating the bear, and John Musker was uh, animating the hunter. There were several people on it. And, you know, we, all, of the, all of the young people, we were all pushing to try to get things off 
sort of standard choices and do things that were dynamic and cinematic and try to push things forward. And the veterans were supporting us, but the you know the directors at the time and the middle management were were being more more cautious. But that sequence with the bear and the confrontation with the hunter and the fox was uh, just rushed. The schedule was too short yeah. to mess around with it very much. And in that rush, I became uh, one of the key cleanup artists for Glenn Keane's animation. You know, that, I'm sure you've seen Glenn's yeah. rough. Uh, drawing. Yeah, there. He, he draws with his whole upper torso and shoulder. And <laughs> just, just you see him. Uh, he's like sweats when he finishes the drawing because <laughs> he's been working it so hard. He just. But when you when you have to turn that into a clean single line, you know you can reinterpret that drawing any number of ways. And of course, we all wanted to see the beautiful dimension of his art protected. So uh, I jumped onto that process of doing key cleanups over Glenn's rough animation to try to help preserve the, the power of his, his animation performance as it went forward. And it came through as one of the scenes that we were proud of that we felt like it pushed a little further maybe uh, into the kind of cinematic storytelling yeah. and, and, and harking back, frankly, to things we were inspired by when we looked at the classic films. I mean, look at Snow White and Pinocchio. They were, they were bold. They were cinematic. And uh, we felt like a lot of that had kind of disappeared, so we were trying to push back in. Copper, we cast it out! No, you, you then uh, you worked on Tron, didn't you, which was a film that still looks visually amazing and, and seems so important in the evolution of computer animation nowadays. Uh, could you just describe your role in the creation of this film? It was another one of those things that uh, the early dominoes that fell started much earlier. Actually, when I was back in, in high school, uh, and I was, I was focusing a lot on creative things. I was doing creative writing and fine art and animation and music. But I took, as an elective... Uh, I took advanced math in my senior year of yeah. high school, and my friends were going, well, what's that about? What? <laughs> it, you, that doesn't seem like you. But I was sort of intrigued by the puzzle of, of math, and two of us from the high school were allowed to go up to that same medical center I mentioned and hang out with the med students to study Fortran computer language. So, And in those days, they, they, the standards were a little different. They sometimes come scurrying in fresh from an operation, and they'd have their scrubs on and blood splatters, and they'd come sit beside me in the chair and be ready to, to work. So we were the two high school students amongst the med students studying Fortran, computer language. And again, my friends were like, what are you doing? It's like punch cards. It's a giant computer. It's, and I said, well, it's, it's a puzzle. It's so interesting to try to figure out how to make it do a task and not get stuck in an endless loop and just all these things. But again, I just years later, the years were ticking by, and I had put all that stuff away. Suddenly, here was Tron, and uh, it's like, oh, art meets computers meets math and programming and all that stuff. And it's like, oh, here it is. Uh, so I went and knocked on their door. And uh, they invited me in. I, I in, at the 30-year 
uh, anniversary of Tron, uh, Bill Croyer and I were at the Chinese Theater yeah. here in Hollywood and talking to a crowd, and, and he grabbed the microphone first and started the preamble, and I didn't quite know where he was going with it, but he, he was talking about how they had started Tron outside the studio. Uh, Disney picked it up, and as they came in, he said, you know, we put a call out to the whole animation department who who wants to come join us on this adventure? And he said, out of that whole animation department, one guy said yes, and it was Jerry. So he pointed at me. And I, and I recalled, like, oh, no, that's right. I, I had just been so focused on it, I hadn't realized that I was like the lone person that had jumped onto the film. And, but I just I couldn't resist jumping into this new adventure. And my first exposure to it was just, uh, uh, again, a, a, a unpredictably wild, fun thing where on my first tour, first day through the facility, was a different floor of the, of the animation department uh, building there where they had set up shop. And I met Mobius, Jean Giraud, the what? amazing artist, and he was doing production boards at the time and helping with design. So I said hello, and I told him what a huge fan I was, and uh, that uh, the person that was hosting me, taking around, said, Jerry's going to start working uh, with you guys. And... So I was looking around and to see where a desk might be, and he said, oh, it's tight on space, um, pull up a chair. <laughs> so we had a flat desk, and I worked facing him on the same desk wow. for, for uh, uh, like six weeks, where it, just, it was the two of us sitting face-to-face with one flat surface, and I tried to hide my drawings when I was drawing them, <laughs> because uh, he, on his side of the desk, there was just these amazing, fluid, beautiful drawings coming out, and I was uh, struggling so he was very kind, and he uh, he taught me some pen techniques and stuff, and he uh, was just a wonderful, gracious guy. Then Bill Croyer and I were tasked with storyboarding all the things that had to do with computer graphics directly. So just the two of us split up all the sequences. There there wasn't even such a thing as a mouse back then, and we'd have to you know be somebody typing for a half hour, and then one new vector line frame would come up, and so it was a very slow process. Then we'd go babysit uh, every scene with uh, I and Magi, the, the companies that were do, executing the, the computer graphics, and right. uh, that was that was very exciting. This is Blue Leader to Blue Bikes. Run these guys into your jet walls. Copy, Blue Leader. Copy, Blue Leader. This is Gold One to Gold Two and Three. Split up. Take them one on one. While we were working on the on Tron and very excited about the potential of computer graphics as a tool for, yeah. for artists to use. There was a, a lot of anxiety going on, and you know, a lot of people that I'd gone to school with were uh, wondering whether it was the right thing, and you know, there was a lot of people saying it was the enemy, that it was uh, push-button art, or, uh, or, or they were just really doubting and saying, well, it, can, it could never do personality or emotion <laughs> ever, and it would just be visual effects. And, um, but there were some people... Like John Lasseter came to sure, the trailer yeah. where we were working, and he would like, oh, that's cool. How does that work? And <laughs> so he was one of the people that could see past where we were at that point, and Brad Bird and a few other people just uh, really started to really understand the implications of working with that tool. And as soon as possible, as we moved several years into the future, I, 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 I would to be very, very evangelical about it. I would do things like, oh, my gosh, Fractal Painter back in the day was a very good drawing tool. I had uh, Wacom drawing tablet, and so I'd whip something out that looked like uh, 2B pencil and watercolor washes, and I would 
print it out and take it in and make it, you know, my friends would go, oh, that's a really nice watercolor. And I'd go, guess what? Computer. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> but, it's, but that's your hand line. And I said, well, it's freehand. It's not telling you what the line should be used. But it was very, very challenging in those days. Uh, Richard Taylor went to the, uh, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and they, they really were skeptical that we had even made the film. They just <laughs> had this fantasy that we pushed a button and a film came out. <laughs> and it was so frame-by-frame, handcrafted by the, the whole team. My gosh, it was so, it was so hand-done. I wanted to uh, to move on now to uh, really the the big reason you're here, Jerry. The reason I, I was really mm-hmm. dying to talk to you, which is uh, uh, what I think is one of the the top five greatest animated films ever made, and I think it would rank highly in my oh, list oh my of God. greatest films in general. Which is the Brave Little Toaster? Mm-hmm. I I can't oh, begin so to much. tell you how much I adore this film. I really can't, and I'm so excited to be able to talk uh, to you about it. Um, can you just uh, start by explaining how this, how you became involved in this project? There were a number of us who were really trying to push animation beyond where it had been. So after being involved with, uh, you know, pushing on the, the little bird and then the bear sequence and <laughs> then on Tron, and then Brad Bird and I, um, with the help of several other people at the studio, put together uh, just a pencil test trailer of coming attractions for a film we were dying to make an adaptation of Will Eisner's The Spirit comic book. And we wanted to do uh, something that felt very Spielberg, very Coppola, like big, we called it BAM cinema, (laughs) where it would be totally character-oriented but cinematic as hell. And so we put together, and and there were so many doubters that people were saying, well, if you do humans, that's just rotoscope. And we're like, no, it doesn't have to be. It can be really expressive and wonderful. So we put together pencil test and we started you know doing this at night so this was our moonlighting while we were still working at the studio and gary kurtz who had just produced uh star wars and empire strikes back we were able to get it to him and he saw and he totally got it and he understood the tone we were trying to do we said look you know walt disney in the classic in, in in the days where something like snow white came out pinocchio came out it was good cinema it held up with filmmaking in, in the industry at the time. Yeah. It wasn't sort of considered the babysitting tool. It was dynamic filmmaking and storytelling, and it was emotional, and it was visual. And that's what we're trying to do with Will Eisner's The Spirit, and, and not make something for kids, because the veterans, the, you know, the nine old men, they told us overtly, like, they never felt like they made a movie for kids in their life. Yeah, they sure. did films that worked for everybody and maybe appealed sometimes to the inner kid in themselves, but they didn't do any of them for kids. So Gary Kurtz understood, and he paid for Brad and I to go um, to just, he was our, our, our angel, <laughs> and just paid us for several years to just work on it. And we storyboarded the entire film. Uh, there's a finished screenplay. We had studios telling us that they loved the script, but then they'd find out it was animated, and it would just be the stop sign for them. They're like, well, well, why would you, this is a really amazing script, why would you make this as a cartoon? We're like, well, we love the medium. Well, uh, that's for kids. We're like, no, it's not. Not, not the way we're going to make it. 
They go, well, nobody will come see it if it's that. And you're like, but you like the script. It's like, yeah, but we thought it was live action. So there was just this whole thing where they absolutely resisted doing that sort of entertainment. And we were, there were a group of us who kept saying, animation will one day do Star Wars business. Animation one day will break $100 million at the box office. People thought we were nuts, but <laughs> Gary Kurtz was one of the people that believed it too, and so he was supporting us in that effort. And eventually, in, with a lot of different aspects, it wasn't just because he was supporting us, I must say, but he started to go uh, bankrupt at the time, or at least was eking up to the edge, uncomfortable edge of bankruptcy. So uh, I, I resigned from that situation, and just said, look, Gary, if we ever get this made, I'm back on the team for sure, but, you know, you could do with one less check to write every week, and so uh, I'm going to resign from that. So that had been, like, uh, overall, from moonlighting at Disney and then working full-time with Gary Kurtz and, and Brad up in, in Northern California, that had been a five-year stretch where that's like every ounce of my being had been, yeah. the, you know, pushing to that next level, the, the amazing storytelling, the cinema, the, the, the just to, to try to shock the industry and delight the industry with something innovative. So imagine going from all of that to suddenly none of it's happening. Yeah. And so that's, that's the space I was in. And Tom Wilhite, who I'd worked with on, on Tron back at, uh, at Disney, called me, and as soon as he found out it was available, called me, had me fly down, meet with him, and he said, I've got this film that I'm taking, uh, it, was, it was potentially going to happen at Disney, it was potentially going to happen with John Lasseter. Um, he's gone, I'm taking the film, so we've got some illustrations to show you, but people are looking at that and going, oh, this is a nice short, what kind of feature is it going to be attached to? And he's, he said, I, I believe this with the right development, in the right hands, I think this could be turned into a legitimate feature. And I think you are the guy. And so here's the book, the novella. Could you give that a read? And then we'll talk. I, I need somebody to develop it, write it, and direct it, but I have hardly any money. So I, I can give you creative freedom, but I can't give you hardly any money. <laughs> so that's my deal. So I was just dying for the creative freedom. Yeah, like sure. the, the, All of that had been pressure for years of like being inspired by the by the early films of Walt and the veterans, and then having the veterans encourage us to keep pushing for new things, trying to make it happen. We thought we were in the best circumstance possible with Gary Kurtz, fresh off Empire Strikes Back, being our supporter. Just couldn't get it to happen. So, so I was just thirsty for creative freedom to just try something. But on the other hand, people would look at it and go, what are you doing, a kindergarten film? <laughs> if, the, if anything's for little tiny children, it would be The Brave Little Toaster. And I said, well, no, but it was written by a science fiction author, and it wasn't written for kids. And I would do it the same way I would approach the spirit. It's just I would not make it for kids. So anyway, I, I said yes, and Tom Wilhite gave me four weeks to retool the story with, with Joe and uh, Brian. So we got in offices, uh, blank index cards, uh, board to pin them up on, and just started going through it. And I was looking at, at some of the sketches and 
Brian McAtee had done this a, a great version of a junkyard, but in the original story, that's like halfway through, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's that looks like the graveyard. That's not where you go in the middle of your adventure. That's the end, man. That's that's where you go to never return. So we got to shove that to the end. And and then it was like, oh, but they don't really have a happy thing to reunite. And plus, if the owners abandon them, it's kind of the owner's not very likable. And so, uh, you know, I came up with the thing of the person they're most attached to being this child of the family and that it's not the child's fault that, the, that they moved away. And so that was... A, a new addition, and also just then saying, well, the, the toaster needs a moment to be brave. I mean, it's called the Brave Little Toaster, <laughs> yeah. so if you go, that child growing up is, they think he's abandoned them, but he still thinks that they'd like to have them, and then they wind up in this junkyard and find some way to make it really not just a sad graveyard, but a dangerous place. So, you know, the crusher and the magnet yeah. things to put real peril there, and then to have the Finally, I was like, okay, now the toaster can literally throw itself into the gears and save the life of its master, who it finally realizes, well, it, 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 he didn't abandon me. He actually would like to find me. He can't find me, and, and uh, I, I'm, I'm going to save his life. So I went, okay, there's, now it earns the title. Now it's great. <laughs> comes across on the screen you can really see that energy in in the film and that's what one of the things that makes it so wonderful i think it's it, it's a lie it's a real it's an alive piece of work i think it's so it's so brilliant um, oh i'm so glad that, that some of that comes across to you viewing it oh absolutely yeah that's that's uh one of the the major things that that makes me think it, it's such a masterpiece uh there are other things of course you mentioned briefly their voice and performance and i think uh the voice casting in, in this is just brilliant. Uh, there's a, a lot of uh, comedians from the improvisational comedy group The Groundlings, wasn't there, who were uh, cast in this. How did you come to, to cast these particular people? It was a first a moment of panic and heart attack, and then it was a moment <laughs> of inspiration. Uh, the heart attack was, as I was doing the process I was describing, running and writing scenes, and for instance, like here's an example of a scene um, the air conditioner scene where it has the confrontation yes. that blows out at the end. <laughs> we kind of had, like, Joe and I had been presenting, people would come through, the, the producer was trying to get more investors involved to try to up our budget a little bit. So we got in the habit of 
uh, pitching the storyboards to people, and and I would be up and I would do all the voices for the board that I was presenting, and then I would slide mine out of the way, and Joe would bring one up, and he would do all the voices for that. And when we came to the air conditioner character, um, we hadn't really found a niche for him. And and one of those things in that first week, the first four weeks I was telling you about, we would put index cards up. One of those processes was to really try to define the character. I was determined to find a, a real anchor for each character. So we had them for the other characters, but not the air conditioner yet. So for the toaster, you know, if, if, if you're writing the character and you say, well, it's warm, and other characters see themselves reflected in it, <laughs> yeah. so they feel comfort when they're around it, like that, that gives you something to, to write from. The lamp that thinks it's really bright, but it's actually a little dim, that gives <laughs> you something to write to. Sure, you know, the little blankie, the, the electric blanket, yeah. that with a child around it would be the child's security blanket. But without the child there, it becomes the insecurity blanket. <laughs> so that gives you uh, uh, something to write to. The, the radio, who's always turned on, is always picking up some sort of retro broadcast from the era when he was created. It's like that sort of energy of constantly being on as the radio, determined to always entertain, uh, that gave us something. And then the, the vacuum, you know, his function is to hold things inside. Yeah. And you do that too long and you get stuffed up and you have a nervous breakdown, <laughs> you know. So that those things were, you, you could really... As a writer, you could then have those character aspects inform you. And at the moment when we were pitching it to people, the air condition was just angry. And it, it didn't have the sort of layers that the other characters did. Yeah. And it's just one of the times we got up, and, and Joe and I would have fun doing voices. And one day I got up and was kind of doing the Nicholson-esque thing, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and Joe was like, ah, that's funny. And then he did it too. And then I was like, oh, wait, 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 wait. I, I think this is something. So I went, well, he's cool. The air conditioner is designed for coolness. So Nicholson, who could be cooler than that? Nicholson. So he's cool, and he's above everyone else. Because <laughs> he's up on the wall. Where it's like he is literally above everyone else. So I went, oh, okay, that, that gives me a handle. And then I went, man, to use the Nicholson voice as the way to express those things, it suddenly felt appropriate. And that was another time where I ran, locked the door, like two or three hours later, that scene was written for the first time. You guys really have an attachment for that kid, don't you? Yes, he was our master. Well, that's real nice. And any day now, he might come romping back, huh? Just come whistling right back in through that door and everything will be the same. Real peachy keen-like. Uh-huh. It's a possibility. So now, it's time to voice cast. So we had people come in, and it was, and, and I, I won't go into any names. I've actually tried not to remember names, but it was sort of, you know, usual suspects, people yeah. that were uh, that were in the industry that were pros that did voice work for for animation. And um, I handed out pages and had a reading, and I just hated the film. <laughs> it was horrible. Just <laughs> somebody going, "I am the toaster." And, And I, I was just sitting there going, I know, I know I wrote better dialogue than this. It <laughs> sounds awful. And these are pros and, and who are used to doing animated voices. And I don't blame them in a way for some of the choices they were making, but it just was depressing. And, uh, and so my zeal for what we were making was uh, momentarily uh, disrupted.
And so I just, I was, you know, polite to people and, and uh, thanked them. But afterwards, I was just sitting there with Joe and Brian, and it's just, oh, my gosh, it's like we can't do this. This is, this is not at all what I had in mind and what I heard in my head. And Joe said, well, you know, I've been taking some, some classes down at the Groundlings Improv Theater, and um, just just because it's fun to brush up on uh, on performance skills and when you're designing characters to, to be thinking about that. So, you know, there's some kind of cool performers down there, that, that different kind of approach. Maybe you want to go down and listen to them. So I did. I went down, and uh, it was the magic that opened things back up again. Yeah. Because what they had done is taken, the people that had come in and read, read for it had taken these characters that were in an improbable situation that was pretty wild, and they had made it even less believable and had pushed it to even more cartoony places. And the job of the improv actors is the opposite. It's like their their job is to make you believe what you're seeing on stage. So if somebody goes, oh, you're a radish, and you're a carrot, and you've fallen in love, uh, you meet at the bus stop, go, you know, and... <laughs> Their job is to take something that seems crazy and make it relatable and understandable yeah. and, and seem to ring true to the audience. So I went, okay, that's, those are the kind of people I need thinking about this. If you were actually a warm toaster that was its biggest joy in life is making a perfect golden piece of toast for its human, it's like that, like, that should be expressed with sincerity. That's, that's a, real, a real thing. If that was your job, it's, you, you would care about that. So... Anyway, they when they auditioned, then it was uh, it was fantastic. And it's like okay, the story as I was experiencing it, writing it on the page, and as we were boarding it together, it's like oh, now it was coming alive with the voices, and it stayed believable. It it had warmth, it had uh, humor and charm, and and just they they were spectacular. So so I was partway through the script, and it was so wonderful to now have them all in mind as I finished the writing. So I wrote specifically for Lovitz to be the radio, and yeah. uh, you know, with Deanna in mind. As the, so for each one of them, it was it was spectacular. And then, and then of course there were the the other folks too. Uh, Thurl Ravenscroft was amazing oh, at, yes. uh, <laughs> at the vacuum, and uh, little Timothy E. Day, our, our yeah, blanky voice. How old was he? Things out. Was he eight years old when he? I did think I, I believe he was, uh, yeah. but he, that was about his age. But he sounded younger and he looked younger mm-hmm. and so I'd, I'd often see people that would would come around while we were recording treat him like a little like a little child he was actually much more intelligent than they <laughs> thought we called him one take tinny because he just he he wanted to know his motivation <laughs> and then he would nail it it was just am- amazing I'm a, I'm a really big fan of uh, Tim Stack as the lamp as well. <laughs> He's great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's, there's a great... I, I love the sound effects on him because there's, there's a, a particular bit where he's bedding down for the night and he uses a rock as a pillow. So, uh, what's this thing with you and the blanket? And the sound of just him putting his head against that rock is just... It's so brilliant. By the way, funny you should mention that because that pan lid that made that sound <laughs> is hanging in my kitchen right now. Oh, wow. And, and, and my wife was still cooking with it up until about three years ago and I finally went, you know, Lampy's head, maybe, maybe we should give him a little respect. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, I'm so glad that that mattered to you. Yeah. The, um, with Deanna Oliver, I went to a... Uh, question and answer period at a college here, uh, Cal State Northridge, and the students had a screening of Toaster and had invited, invited me and, and Deanna to come 
talk with them afterwards. And one of the things they brought up, and, and Deanna and I heard this a lot, and I've, I've seen it in a number of times from people who have written to me, and it wasn't something that I necessarily would have expected, but they referred to the film as really dark, that they were intrigued by it, and, and it was sort of like scared the crap out of them. <laughs> so, uh, but, but they kept watching it anyway, they were, but they used the word dark, and, and Deanna and I were kind of puzzling and going, well, I guess. I said, well, I just was treating the situation seriously, like if you're thinking in quicksand, that's not funny. I mean, I don't want to <laughs> wink to the audience to go, don't worry, they'll get out. You know, it's, like, it's like, no, let the moment have peril. It's like in Pinocchio, when he drowns and he's face down in the water, they didn't go, oh, don't worry, he's just <laughs> pretending. You know, it was like, no, he's like, he's not moving, man. He's face down in the water. So I was used to thinking that way, and I didn't think it was particularly trying to make it dark. It's just, well, that's what they're going through right now. But as I was talking to them about, and there's like, why did we feel that? Why did we feel the sort of dark quality or the, the believability of that world? And something occurred to me then when I was talking to them, one of the aspects, I think, was that there was no sound from a library in the film. We did fully for everything. Yeah. Um, and I purposely did not want you to hear your ear to detect a sound and go, oh, yeah, that's from Huckleberry Hound or yeah. that's from Sword in the Stone from Disney or whatever. I just wanted your brain to everything you heard to have it happen for the first time and for you to think, well, this is their world. This is them. This is, this is a fresh thing. And finding Lamp's head for this slightly <laughs> stupid sound for his head was the, the hardest one. And we were, we were going, it was funny, I was going with a, a, a sound assistant all over Los Angeles to uh, like pawn shops and, uh, you know, the stores that sold antiques and stuff. And, we took like pencils with it. We were tapping everything in the store, and people would come running up. Worried, what are you doing? <laughs> we're like, oh, we're actually doing a movie, and we need something. I don't need a lamp that is bright or looks. I just need it to sound a certain way. <laughs> so, I, pardon me, pardon me while I hit your lamp because I need it to sound a certain way. Um, so we did that all over, and what we started discovering was it's not always the object that you think it is that will make the right sound. And so we had a big one-inch videotape was actually what we used for the radio sound to clatter around oh, yeah. and um, used a bendy neck for the neck of the lamp but the the head it wound up I was just at home would started pulling pots and pans out of uh, after I was frustrated that we couldn't find anything all over the, the city of Los Angeles and I just started hitting pots and pans at home and there was just one kind of porcelain covered pan lid and you had to hit it with your knuckle in just the right spot and it sounded a little bit dumb and <laughs> And I just said, oh, my God, that's it. So I put a little <laughs> tape mark on it. I went, that's Lampy's head. And uh, then I went and explained to the Foley artist exactly where to tap it. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's Lampy's head. Go find your own place to sleep, you little fuzzball. Yeah, you Go might... find your own place to sleep, you little fuzzball. <laughs> that's very um... interesting. Then I thought it. You do a very good Tim Stack, actually. <laughs> um... uh, he was fun and fun to be around. And is it true that, that John Lovitz had to record all of his dialogue in w- one session? It is true, and that, uh, and that was also the reason I had to sing all his parts. Oh. He was gone. So anytime <laughs> you hear the radio singing, it's me. Anytime uh, you hear him talking, it's John. Wait, so you sing um, the line, Master is the man who lays his hand across the land? Master is a man who lays his hand across the land. Master is the man <laughs> with a plan I can understand. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> 
didn't happen on purpose. I just intended him to do everything. So he had auditioned. I loved him. He was actually, it's like, I can do the radio. I can do this one. I can do that one. He was like wanting to be all these different characters. And I said, <laughs> no, 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 just the radio. But I'll let you do a bunch of different things as the radio. Um, and I wrote it with him in mind. Then he got his big break in his career, and he was accepted onto Saturday Night Live. And so his agent was just like, see you later. He's not going to record. It's like, he's off your movie. And he was just going to be gone in like two days. And I wasn't finished with the script. I was still writing it. So I called John, and I said, I, I wrote this for you, and can't, can't we work something out? And so he was like, oh, man, I'll check it out. I'll see what I can do. And so he finally... Talks to his agent, pushes back, and so we get a uh, recording session set up at Buzzy's recording studio in Hollywood. And um, but I'm not done with the script, so I was sitting there just frantically writing through the night to finish the script to be ready to to have him record. And then then went in and I said, and, and he was alone, so I said all the other character lines to him. So I, I went in the in the recording booth with him. And so I would do all the ensemble character lines to feed to him, so we'd have something to feed off of. Um, and then, and we went through the through half the script, and it it was hours. And at the beginning, you know, he just was. I mean, he's such a funny guy, and he was <laughs> he was trying to entertain everybody, the, the engineer and our editor and me, and he was just trying to make us all laugh. So, so he'd do a line, and then he'd do like five more imp things, and just always be the entertainer just well, just like the radio yeah and then that lasted for a few hours and then of course energy started to wane so my my editor don ernst he he gestures for me to come into the booth and uh so i did and he just quietly said the energy's going it's, it's like you know you just don't do this you don't have an actor do the entire feature in mm -hmm. one setting this is a heroic effort. We tried to make it work. It, it, you know, we've got some great stuff, but you've got half the movie left to do, and and just with the energy fading this much, I just I think we can't do it. We have to work something out. Go to New York later. Flying back, something. But so I said, well, let me take a break with him. So it was night by that time, and we went and walked out. In uh, on the sidewalk and got some fresh air, and I just uh, broke it to him gently. I said, well, you know, you've been doing gangbusters, amazing, over-the-top, cool stuff for us, and but, you know, we're working you hard, and just in the booth where they're only listening through the speakers, it sounds like it's, you know, we're starting to work you so hard, and you're losing some of your energy, which has been heroic. I mean, nobody does this, so I, I, I'm amazed you got this far, but what do you think? I mean, do you think there's a way to regroup, or do you think we call it a night? And he's like, "Ah, oh, man, uh, I'm gonna do it. I, uh, I'll go back in, and I'll I'll be holding my eye, and I'll tell tell him you hit me. And I'll say, <laughs> oh, okay, Jerry, I'll do whatever you want, you know. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, we we walk a couple more blocks, and we go back in, and he does it. He holds his eye, and he's like, "Ow, ow!" And we walk in, and he's like, "I'll do whatever you want." And so I shrug and we go back into the into the booth and then he was just like like how should I do this what do you want and then he he stopped doing all the entertainment between and just figured I better save all my energy for the lines and uh, he just stayed focused and got through it and it was just amazing it's like and, and 
my editor and, and the sound engineer afterwards just said, yeah, we've never seen a, somebody bring it back like that. So John, <laughs> John just, he worked the miracle, man. Yeah. So then he was gone, and I had the other art people in the ensemble. So I'm like, well, I want the group ensemble quality. So I sat in, and I just did his dialogue <laughs> purely as temp for them to respond to as we were doing ensemble recording. So I still saw it as, like, no, John did all this. I'm just mimicking him in service of helping the other actors here at live during the timing that we're doing here. But then it came time for the the music to be recorded, and they just said, sorry, he's so booked on Saturday Night Live, and it's just constant, and it's not in the cards, man. So I started looking around for, like, where are we going to find somebody to sing the radio's voice? Oh, my God. And... David, you know, I really hadn't thought about it, and David Newman, our composer, just, he said, what are you, crazy? It's you. <laughs> I, I hear you doing Lovett's voice all the time. And so I was like, but I can't sing with it. And he's like, well, I, look, I have a voice coach there. You're, you're going to do this. And so I reluctantly went in, and, and I was very nervous about it, and especially hitting some of the high notes in that voice and stuff. But, uh, you know, he coaxed me through it, and so the the rest is, is history and uh, and is is not credited that way. So it's a it's a good cocktail party. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so we've we've touched briefly on music there. So I I wanted to talk about the music in this film because it, it is amazing. Uh, before we get to the songs, though, I just wanted to touch briefly mm-hmm. on uh, the score by David Newman. Uh, which I think is right. is really, uh, I mean, it, the, the film opens with this moment, it's sort of bleak grey dusk and it has the subtlest of musical accompaniments. And I think David Newman's score really works on, on the viewer's emotions without them even noticing. And this subtlety is, is maintained throughout. I mean, were you, were you as impressed with the score as I was? Absolutely. And I think he was part of, a huge part of the emotional signature of the film. And as we were talking before, you know, a number of people have mentioned the mixture of lightness and darkness in the film. And, and they, they don't hesitate to call it a dark film. Yeah. But uh, I, as I was talking through the story and the characters and, and just making him aware of scene by scene uh, how the story was unfolding, he said, this is so sad. It's such a sad story. And he, he just perceived it that way. And he, in general, I would talk to him and he said, even the most joyous moment in life is inherently has, is sad in a way because it's fleeting. You know, it's not going to sustain. It's like the, any, any moment of joy. Yeah is going to be in the past soon. <laughs> so he just said, anytime I write joy, I write sorrow at the same time. It just has to be. And uh, so he really looked at these characters that were doing their best, but were abandoned, and they didn't know why, and they're trying to get along, and, and just the, the whole thing, he 
just felt this undercurrent of that mixture of hope and sadness at the same time. And so he he just went off and was was working, uh, and I was wondering what he was creating. But he anytime he would talk to me, he had this passion and that had that mixture always of angst. Yeah. And uh, I thought, well, that that's good. I, I I'm glad that he's in that emotional space. But I didn't know how it was being expressed musically for a long time. And um, then he, I remember we were getting down to the wire, and we were uh, finally getting on a plane to go to Japan to record with the, the Shin Nippon Orchestra, I believe, the New Japan Philharmonic. And um, we were on the flight, and he had a, a keyboard, and he had headphones, and he was still writing. <laughs> and he had sheet music spread out, and he was on the keyboard with his headphones, and he was jotting things down. And then he was like, Jer, put on the headphones. <laughs> and he'd play something. And, uh, and then he was like, what do you think? you think this is violin or piano would carry this line and whatever? And so that was the only time where we actually were kind of collaborating for a moment, just on the plane in this mad dash. And um, he didn't tell me this until later, but he said, told me later that the night prior, before we got on the plane, he had been sitting at home on the floor with his music spread around him on the floor and just went, I can't do this. This is insane. It's too much. I can't get through this last cue. It's epic. It's how many minutes long is it? We're recording with the orchestra in two days. I can't. This, and he just was beside himself with anxiety. And, uh, and then here he was on the plane, passionately writing, sharing a few moments with me, and then we get up in front of the orchestra, and it just was magic. I, I loved it. And I, yeah. I still, to this day, feel like it's one of his most deep scores. Yeah. When you just listen to all the different cues, and you hear the range of expression in it. And I, I, I love his stuff over the years anyway, but I still feel like he tapped into so many pockets of emotion in, in that score. That just I, I feel blessed that he had that outpouring of creativity with us. And the, the songs themselves in in the film, I mean, uh, without mentioning any particular examples, the 1980s animation can have some pretty ropey songs in it. <laughs> but yep, the, yep. the songs in, in The Brave Little Toaster are just fantastic and written by no lesser composer than Van Dyke Parks. Yeah, well. yeah. Uh, I that mean, how, how did he get involved? <laughs> uh, it was a brilliant stroke of... Uh, of, of not a stroke of luck, but a stroke of strategy from uh, Tom Wilhite, the producer. He just he, as he was putting these elements together, when he you know when he heard that I was available, that I was not working with Gary Kurtz anymore, it's like boom. He like called me immediately. Within within a couple of days, I was sitting with him and the novella sitting on the table, and he told me, "Here's this composer, David Newman. You, you know, I'm like who? It's like you you will love him. He's right for this movie." <laughs> And he said, Van Dyke Parks is, uh, is going to do songs. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the song, which is sort of the film's theme or my city of light, is just, it's, a, it's such a, a wonderful melody. It 
almost makes me sob every time I hear it. I just, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, working up to to this interview, you knowing I was coming here all all week, I've been working around the house singing it, and my wife keeps going, "What, what is that song you're singing?" <laughs> so it's from the Brave Little Toaster. I've shown you this right, one. Come right. on. Oh <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. But also, I think that the songs are so perfectly worked in because it's not like some of these films where you, you stop and you have an almost unconnected big kind of production number. They're always right. moving the film on. And I think like probably my favourite song in the film is Worthless and that has an incredible sequence that goes with it. I mean can you just can you just describe that sequence for people who haven't well, seen it? It's um you're in this junkyard which is massive piles of cars and other things, but a lot of the things that you see stacked to the sky are cars that are have been junked and they're ready to go to this masher, like a big giant compactor that uh, crushes them down into little tiny cubes and discards them. So it's efficiency. And there's a, a huge electromagnet that goes around and grabs the cars, tosses them into this funnel and they're crushed into little cubes and and that's it that's their demise of the of the cars so this song actually has the poor cars on their way to their demise express their last feelings about what their history has been like and what their last memories are and then and then they're crushed it's it's actually quite a horrific thing and you know the the stakes at that point are really huge because yeah. you see this crusher and this magnet are relentless and they will not stop and go oh the toaster's so cute let's let it live you know (laughs) it's not going to happen they're going to get crushed it's so relentless that when the human master comes along and is looking to find something to take to his dorm for appliances and um, among the junk and then starts to find his own real appliances that he remembers from back in his childhood that somehow wind up in this very junkyard when he winds up trying to grab them and going onto the conveyor belt headed towards this horrible compactor it's not going to be forgiving of him either. It doesn't care what goes in its mouth. It's going to crush him and the cars and the, the toaster. Like every, all the characters are just going to be crushed unless something intervenes. And you know, like reason's not going to help. You know, empathy's not going to help. Yeah. It's like it doesn't give a crap. And <laughs> so ultimately, what saves everyone is the brave little toaster itself climbing high onto one of those piles and hurtling itself into the gears of that mechanism to have it grind to a stop and just jam it so that it can't crush crush the master um so you know in that sequence there's this amazing song and we had just gone through it was the only time where i felt like there was we, we kind of hadn't quite hit the song mark that that song didn't exist yet and what Van Dyke had given us with those other wonderful songs, but then uh, um, a ballad. It was like a, a love ballad that kind of expressed the sadness of the separation of the master and, and the appliances. But it was it was didn't get into the intensity of the sequence. Yeah. And yes, there's a way you could see playing sort of a wistful ballad over the, the what fate has handed them. But that was the only time that I went to Will Hyde and went to Van Dyke and went. It, it has to be something else. It's that this isn't it. It has to be really connected to, to what the characters are going through. And uh, so that was the only time where it was like, one song was on the editing room floor, and his solution was just uh, amazing. Uh, so he really got in and did the song, and then then it was a matter of going back in and storyboarding exactly to all of those lyrics. So fortunately, with him regrouping, doing that great song, and then us slamming into the storyboards right away so that we'd feel married and not 
sort of like needle drop sound over kind of thing. It was like really meant to be one unified expression. Yeah. Then, then that, that brought it all together. Once in an Indian nation, I took the kids on the skids with the hope he was happy to lie and say, You're worthless. It's just a, a brilliant sequence. I, I suppose that it's probably one of the uh, one of the sequences that makes people call it a dark film. I mean, I can't think of another sequence right. in a film that introduces and then kills off so many characters so quickly. But I think also uh, probably you probably know where this is going when I say there's, there's one particular image in the film which I think people uh, described as as very dark, and it's uh, during the, a nightmare sequence uh, mm. in which the toaster dreams about an encounter with this horrific fireman clown. <laughs> uh, I mean, what... What, what the uh, heck? That, that is exactly the question I have written down. <laughs> How did this right. nightmare vision of hell end up in there? <laughs> well, you know, it's, we were just going, okay, this has to be a moment where uh, a fond dream, because you've just gone through the nice little sequence where... The first time they try to bed down for the night in the in the the thicket, and there's a little clearing, and Blanky comes to Toaster for assurance, and Toaster's just tired and <laughs> pushes little Blanky away. Come on, I'm not the master. Go snuggle somewhere else. I'm trying to get some sleep. Now go on. And you see Blanky's all alone. All the characters are alone, and. That you've gone through that, and then the next day there's the encounter with the flower. And you know, I purposely yeah. had the flower also be a gentle thing that wants reassurance, and is the same exact yellow as the blanket. So that's not by accident. Oh wow! A very yeah. Thing. Oh, no, no, it's just a reflection. I'm not a flower. So now you have the same reach for the intimacy and the hug that Blanky had asked for the night before. Now this flower is doing it, and it's doing it because it thinks the reflection of the other flower is a real flower. But you have this equivalent moment. It's a mirror of what happened the night before. It's an echo of that where, you know, it shoves the blanket away. Now it's apologizing and going, well, I'm not what you think. I can't help you. I can't be this thing for you. And it it leaves the flower, and the flower is wilted in the same way that, you know, Blanky wilted the night before, except now it literally loses a petal as it wilts. And Toaster feels terrible. It's like, I can't help, I can't help it. But then as soon as it gets back to here's Blanky in trouble, the very next moment, it suddenly helps Blanky. And it's like, okay, I learned my lesson. You know, I shoved the little vulnerable yellow character away the, the night before. I sadly had to shove the next little vulnerable yellow character away because I, I literally couldn't help that one. And it will did. Now I'm going to reach out and help Blanky. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to be the supporter of the little vulnerable yellow character today. Um, and, you know, helps Blanky, pulls him away from the mice. And then when the rest of the characters are starting to razz him and make fun of the of, of Blanky toaster, stands up for, yeah. for Blanky. And then, then Blanky reciprocates, the, you know, the goodwill by making a tent for them that night. So yeah. there's... This isn't a cause and effect, and, you know, they're chatting about it, and it's all cozy and warm and about communicating kindness. And once 
Toaster describes the feeling as a glow, then Lamp under, Lampy understands and remembers when his bulb burns out and the, the master the little boy replaced the bulb and he just glowed and, you know, he understands better. And so now you're in this place where it's, you know, there's sort of wistful, happy memories going on. And so we started the dream with that same kind of a wistful, happy moment where it's, you're making toast for the little kid and the toast pops up and he's putting jam on it and stuff and making faces. So you see just the good times. But I really wanted to have something where the toaster somehow feels like it's its fault that they're separated, that, that this whole thing of like maybe the abandonment was because they weren't good enough as clients yeah. they didn't serve the master well enough. Who knows? But it's like I wanted the character to be carrying a sense of guilt, like maybe it is my fault. So we just started riffing on, well, having toast get stuck in you so it burns, that's a fear of a toaster. And like having uh, having forks jammed in your slots is a <laughs> fear of a toaster. And, and having like getting electrocuted with like water shorting you out is something a toaster would be afraid of. So we just started riffing on that sort of fantasia, like like stream of consciousness stuff. And we're like, well, where would the water, it's like this big tidal wave of water coming from, where would it be? And like, uh, well, from a fire hose. Yeah, but it can't just be a, this is a nightmare. This can't be just even a normal fireman. Oh, how about a fireman clown? Uh, <laughs> and uh, actually, it's a good friend of mine, Steve Moore, animated that. And so we, he's had several people mention, like, that sequence scared the shit out of me. And he's like, well, sorry, but I'm the guy that animated this. <laughs> but it was, it was just trying to reach for a stylization of if you were a toaster, what would you, you be afraid of? And then yeah. try to put that sort of nightmare spin on that. So no, it works the really water, well. the forks, the, the fire, the, you know, yeah. and, and having literally the smoke from its own fire grab the kid and pull it away was a very yeah. symbolic thing. And so I can't give you anything more specific than just in that spontaneity of just brainstorming quickly every day and not having time to overthink anything it was just one of those things where it was like, yeah, that's fun. It's in. Go. And it's like there was, nobody ever had a chance. There was no committee that would later go, I'm not sure this is appropriate. <laughs> like, it's already done. Yeah. It's in the film. Well, it's all the better for it. I think it, I think it works really well. It, 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 did, it does still scare me a little bit, especially he, the, ca- the clown leans right into the camera and he just whispers, run. Run, yes, <laughs> and the run. smoke oh, comes yeah. out of his teeth and it's <laughs> it's yeah. really terrifying you know we a lot of people assume that this would be a kids film but i'll tell you as director and writer and storyboard artist and with the whole team with me None of us were making a film for kids. No, um, absolutely not. We, we, we were making it for 20-somethings. I mean, we were in our, our mid-20s, and we were making a film for us at that age. And, I, you know, I just I get so frustrated when I see people write off animation yeah, as, uh, as something that is relegated to a babysitting tool. And yeah. I think there's a huge difference between making material that that in the entire family can legitimately watch so that it's like the best definition of a family film where it's works for the children and teens and adults and middle age and seniors like ideally you're trying to get that huge swath of of human experience yeah. to all 
give them something to relate to. When you took the film to Sundance, uh, wasn't there a particularly uh, frustrating reaction there? Yes, it was really disappointing. Uh, you know, here we were uh, against all odds, and and we were hoping that at Sundance it would give us a chance to finally find a home for the release of the film. Yeah. So we take it out to Sundance, and it screens in 1988. And I had several people took me aside, uh, several of the judges, told me that behind closed doors they had agreed that I had the best film there that year, but that if they awarded the prize to a cartoon, as they called it, um, they would, nobody would take the festival seriously going forward. So the best they could do is say, just so you know, secretly, you think you have the best movie, but we're going to give it to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> and I would kind of say, thank you, I guess. <laughs> and uh, so I told my crew, you know, well, secretly we had what they thought was the best film that year, mm-hmm. and uh, publicly we were just at the festival and didn't particularly get noticed. Um, but we had Skurus Pictures, which was a art house distributor, at the time here in in L.A. Um, They loved the film, and they understood what it was, and they were going to do, like, tailor a release of the film in theaters for college and young adult people into their 30s. And they had no, like, matinee for kids at all. It just was, like, starting in the evening, and they were going to tailor the advertising and all of that to, to hit that market. And so I was overjoyed that even though we weren't getting the public notice, only secret notice up at Sundance, that there might be something to show for it to at least get it out and, and uh, finally get our labor of love in front of some people. And then Disney had been one of the uh, the investors in the film. A number of different companies gave small amounts, and what Disney had bought was home video and uh, the Disney Channel. So that, that's what they had paid for. Uh, no merchandising, no theatrical, no any, any of the other things, but they owned that. So we were getting terrific reviews from from reviewers at, at other festivals, like we had one at the Wadsworth Festival here before Sundance in, in L.A., and they were saying things like sharper and wittier than anything you'd expect from Disney. So Katzenberg had just come in, and he was really seeing that as competing reviews and uh, was not too happy about that. So... They moved to put it on Disney cable earlier. Mm. They moved up the release date earlier, and it killed our theatrical mm. release. Um, but, you know, it was a smart move and I, I, on their part, and I, I talked directly to Jeffrey about this, and yeah. I said, I, 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 I got a lawyer over that issue. I had a, a lawyer, a young lawyer who I've been with ever since, Peter Nichols, who's wonderful, but he... He approached me at the festival and he said, oh, I saw your film. I'm a lawyer who's starting out in the industry. Do you need a lawyer? And I went, yeah, I do, because I'm trying to get a distributor. And there's a situation where suddenly Disney Channel is moving it up and it's killing my one chance at a theatrical release. Can you help? So he he came back to me and said, "I've, I've never seen this before, but if they let it go in the theaters, it would be a more valuable product for them on cable and in home video. But they're pushing it up and killing the theatrical anyway, and even though it will devalue the product. But what it was doing was making all those reviews that were nice reviews, suddenly they were Disney reviews. Yeah. And uh, so 
I understood the chess move, and I talked to Katzenberg, and I tried to say, look, here's what's going on. You know it. And he's like, oh, don't want to stand in your way, kid. And I said, but you are. You understand that. Good luck, kid. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, pretty soon we were working together, and he um, he supported me, and the first thing I directed for the theme parks for, for Disney was Back to Neverland with Robin Williams and Walter Cronkite, yeah. and they were scared of using Robin Williams for animation. He was not cast in Aladdin at the time, yeah. and it was it was he was uh, considered a crotch grabbing adult comic that shouldn't belong with Disney animation. And so, but but I argued the point with uh, Katzenberg, and he let me use him. And so, you know, even though that was a real arrow to the heart from Jeffrey uh, in the uh, regarding Toaster, um, he supported something creative. Uh, on one of my other projects, so yeah. it did. It, I didn't consider it completely uh, making it right, but at least it was better. <laughs> yeah. Of well, we could, let's let's end on a on a positive note, Jerry, because uh, we can't leave it on that. Um, this this film, The Brave Little Toaster, I think has probably the greatest closing line of of all time, <laughs> and it's it's spoken by by Tim Stack as as Lampy, and it always reflects the way I feel having watched the film uh, if you can remember what this line was and if you could say it to me now as Tim Stack. Oh my gosh, are you talking about the the last one? Is it, is it like, I am aching from joy? It is, is, that, is, it is. I'm aching from joy. Oh, thank you so much, Jerry. I can literally say now, having, having spoken to you and having heard you say that line, you completely, uh, you've made my night. <laughs> Thank you so so much for coming to talk to me tonight. It's been it's been absolutely lovely. Absolutely, it's been great talking with you, and uh, and thanks for getting in touch with me. And and also just um, also here's here's something I I've only shared this with one other person. Oh wow! But I, what the heck? I might as well. I, you <laughs> yeah, know, I had I'd been thinking <laughs> I'd been thinking about a um, you know a. a sequel and it's it's kind of out of my hands right now but i just went ahead and went well if it were me what would i do so i actually had written the treatment for what i would you know i never saw the the two films that followed i you know no i never have either but i thought well and i did have a, a producer approach me and say well you know if i could if i had a magic wand i would just have you write and direct a proper sequel and pretend the first one is the only one that exists and then just do the next one um so during that discussion i uh i spent some time writing uh, a, a treatment for a potential sequel story wow. and so uh there's a bunch of stuff with legalese and who controls it and uh, and who knows where that will wind up uh at the moment it's completely out of my control but i went ahead and took some of the story of the sequel that, that I have, I have like the whole arc of the story written down. Oh, fantastic. But I just wrote a chapter. I just wrote a chapter of it as if it were just, uh, you know, in book form, not in a script form. Yes. And, um, and I posted it, and I have never sent out a link to the, to the site, but it is, uh, it's just called Reflections of a Toaster. Wow. .com. And it is, it exists. And it is a it is one chapter in what I would see as the sequel wow. to the to the film. Um, <laughs> well, I know what I'm doing, and I'll leave it then. <laughs> so anyway, and I as I get time, I may add 
different chapters to that. Oh, and, fantastic. Uh, and just see what happens. I thought, well, if I can't control what happens in the film world right now, um, maybe I can just tease out some of the some of the story chapter by chapter and, and see how people feel about it. Oh, lovely. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that with me, Jerry. That's uh, that's made my night twice over. All right, Andrew. <laughs> oh, thank well, have you. Have a great so rest much. of your evening. Uh, Thanks for yeah. staying up late to chat with me. Oh, with no problem. It's been a here. pleasure. It's been a pl- absolute <laughs> pleasure. Thank you so much, Jerry. We did good, didn't we? Yep. We did good. My sincerest and warmest thanks to Jerry Rees for giving up so much of his valuable time and, in the process, giving me one of the most entertaining evenings of my life. You can find out more about Jerry and his work at his website, jerryrees.com, and about the monumentally exciting prospect of a Brave Little Toaster sequel at reflectionsofatoaster.com. Life is like a journey on a road that's within. Head says you should stay, but your heart says to begin. So you go, but you don't want to go. You've been listening to Spoiler with me, Andy Golding. On the next Spoiler Animation Special, I'll be talking to British animator Joanna Quinn, creator of formidable Welsh housewife Beryl, and director of the Oscar-nominated Channel 4 animation, Famous Fred. Then the telephone <laughs> rang, and uh, an American voice said, Hi, this is the Academy. We want to tell you that you've been nominated. I mean, no, don't be serious. You know. Master is a man with a plan I can understand. Master is a man of great reflection. You can find out more about Spoiler and listen to our past shows at spoilerpodcast.co.uk or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Acast and iTunes. Also, check out my list of a thousand and one animated shorts you must see. You can find the link at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is recorded in the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. Just to be, not deny, to reside, we survive, we arrive to the city, the city of life.